I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I would say when I was, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I decided, you know, that I wanted to be a cheerleader for whatever reason. And uh, and it was funny because I, I tried out for cheerleader and I, I thought I was fairly good. And I made it to be the fourth alternate. Now, Tyle, do you know how to, do you know how bad you have to be to be in the fourth? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means that at least four other people have to leave the team in order for you to get on the team. Uh, but within about, I'd say about a month, I was put on the team, and uh, my teacher was the sponsor of the team. And you know, I naively asked her. I said, you know. Um, how is it that I'm being put on the team when I'm the fourth alternate and only one person left in my school because she actually was became pregnant with twins at 11 years old, and um, and my teacher said, well, you know, Charlene, you're um, you're talented, um, but and she didn't say and she said but um, you're talented, but you're black, and I, we thought you'd be a troublemaker. And now that I've had you in class, I see that you're a sweet girl, little girl. So we put you on the team, yeah. you know. And so, you, you know, what do you what do you do with that at 11 years old? I'm back. Yes, I'm back to regularly scheduled programming. And I took a little bit of a break after doing a podcast episode every day throughout the month of June. And I really appreciate a lot of the willingness that many of you showed to unlearn and learn about your biases. And I'm very, very confident that we are approaching a world where we're going to be the smatlin' systems of oppression. That's an interesting segue into today's guest though. Today's guest is Charlene Willis. As you heard a little bit in the uh, clip before this, she's an amazing woman, she's extraordinary. And in our episode, we dive into her journey to finding herself. And she had several, several moments there were big pivotal moments in the career, whether it was through an illness, whether it was through career shifts, or her understanding the power of a voice. And she's a communications maven. She's an expert in managing crisis. She knows how to make people feel seen, heard, and understood. And she's in the process of writing her book, which will come out either late this year or next year. But I leave all the details in the show notes for you to connect with her. And I hope that you enjoy the episode. Thank you all once again for participating. We are going to be ready for the new normal i believe it but today enjoy charlene and give her some love after you listen to the episode talk to you soon welcome everybody to another episode of as told by nomads and today's guest is charlene willis she's a renowned communications expert author speaker with more than three decades of experience in corporate communications after serving 15 years in c-suite positions her life took an unexpected turn when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Today, Willis combines her extensive knowledge of leadership and communications with her skill managing adversity to help others learn to retain authenticity in life and in business and finding strength in vulnerability. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things. Charlene, <laughs> I, I, I was saying, is a phenomenal woman. And I, you know, in the while doing research, I was just in awe of her career. So, I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here, Tayo. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. So, everyone has a story. Everyone starts somewhere. Where did Charlene start and what were her turning points to get her to where she is today? 
Wow, that's a big question to uh, to start with, <laughs> isn't it? My goodness. So I am. Uh, I originally hail from uh, Oakland, California, the Bay Area. Um, not necessarily, as I say, the good part. You know, with the rolling hills and the big homes. You know, I um, grew up in the in Sobrani Park, California. So um, most people are not familiar with that, but it's probably um, today known as. Um, probably one of the roughest neighborhoods uh, in Oakland. As a matter of fact, it's probably more known now for uh, for drugs and uh, and violence and all the things that go with the things that you hear about in, uh, in urban environments. So that's where I hail from. Um, but I, w- I am the uh, product of a single mother. So my, uh, my parents divorced when I was around seven-ish or so, and my mother... Um, moved me to Albuquerque, New Mexico, of all places. And uh, and from there, you know, I went to high school in Albuquerque. I um, went to college in New Mexico and then also in the D.C. area and then uh, started my career. So, um, but I guess you talk about kind of turning points is um, I'd say from the time I was probably about six or seven, I realized that I was going to have to learn what it meant to be a little black girl in the United States um, at that time in the 70s. And um, growing up, I think I uh, every time I felt like I had made a significant leap, then uh, something else would happen that would remind me that I am still a little black girl in the United States of America. And while that's better off than many places in our world. You know, I, I won't um, certainly deny that. Um, it's not always an easy road. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I I am just curious to hear more because we talk about these type of things on the podcast. You said you, you were reminded several times yeah. about that. Could you share some examples? Well, sure. You know, when you, um, you know, I remember, you know, growing up when I was first in Oakland and, um, you know, again, up until I was about seven, because I think that was probably the first turning point. I, uh, my mother was an abused wife um, from my father, and it was when I was seven that she left my father, and it was me and my three brothers uh, in tow. And, you know, when you grow up and you're black and you're poor and you're around everybody else who's black and poor, you don't know that you're different yeah. until you move into another neighborhood where everybody isn't black and poor. You know, and so suddenly you realize, oh, hey, there's something a little different, uh, uh, you know, uh, about me. And at that time, anyway, the world tells you that you shouldn't, you don't have the right to take pride in who you are, right? You're more of a a victim than you are kind of a a victor, you know, and and trying to figure that out uh, when you're that young uh, and when you're a girl, you know, girls are at least in those days are not particularly valued. Um, and, you know, people people tend to think that that doesn't exist in the U.S., but um, very much so. And particularly particularly if you're not, you know, middle class or upper middle class. And, you know, and I I would say when I was, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I decided, you know, that I wanted to be a cheerleader for whatever reason. And uh, and it was funny because I, I tried out for cheerleader and I, I thought I was fairly good and I made it to be the fourth alternate. Now, Tyle, do you know how to, do you know how bad you have to be to be in the fourth? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means that at least four other people have to leave the team in order for you to get on the team. Uh, but within about, I'd say about a month, I was put on the team. And uh, my teacher was the sponsor of the team. And, you know, I naively asked her, I said, you know, um, how is it that I'm being put on the team when I'm the fourth alternate and only one person left in my school because she actually was became pregnant with twins at 11 years old. And um, and my teacher said, well, you know, Charlene, you're um, you're talented, um, but and she didn't say and she said, but. Um, you're talented, but you're black, and I, we thought you'd be a troublemaker. And now that I've had you in class, I see that you're a sweet girl, little girl. So we put you on the team, yeah. you know. And so, you, you know, what do you what do you do with that at 11 years old? That, that happened to me multiple times 
at 10. <laughs> and, and it, I just, that's why I was shaking my head. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a, that was a, a pivot point. And then, you know, I, I kind of break it up almost like in decades, you know, I, I was in college for a while in Texas um, having a grand old time. And I, uh, my friends and I used to go out um, dancing to, you know, the kind of whatever was popular in the, the 80s and mid 80s then. And um, and I remember going to a record store and wanting to buy uh, this song. And it was called, now don't, don't judge my music taste, okay? No <laughs> was, judging. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys, okay? So very alternate music, right? You'd, you'd, you'd know it if you were in London. I wasn't in London. I was in Texas. But anyway, um, and I went to the record store and I asked the manager for the song. I didn't know who wrote it. I just knew the song. And he spent about 10 minutes looking for this record for me, which I really appreciated. And then he came back to me and he said, I'm sorry, miss, but I've looked everywhere in the hot black singles and it's not there. You know, and I said, you know, I never said it was a hot black single. I just said it was a record. You know, so you just you get these little things along the way and then, you know, and then you 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 do all the things you're supposed to do. Right. You, you yeah. put yourself through school. You work three jobs so that you can get a degree uh, and then you go to work and in the corporate world. And then you realize it's like, holy shit, <laughs> what just happened Yeah, when you walk into the corporate world and you you look like me? <laughs> You know, one one of the things that I loved when I was researching you was in relation to that. You know, you, you'd moved to D.C., you got this uh-huh. job. I guess you described it. It would be a, a postgraduate internship. Um, right. You, uh-huh. Yeah. You were, you were working at IBM and you said yeah. that this was this is around the time when people were wearing blue suits, <laughs> blue, blue ties. And if, if a person wore a red tie, they were recognized as a clown. Right. But, yeah. But you said something so profound to me that I. 100% identify with. You said you realized at the age of 22 that the people there, even though they were successful, were only trained to work at IBM and will not succeed anywhere else. And that's something you didn't want to do. Absolutely. Now, yeah, tw- first, let me commend you on your research. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I take this job very seriously, yeah. Charlie. <laughs> you know, but and it was a strange thing because I was, what, at most maybe 22 years old. And I saw, you know, I, I have great respect for IBM, but I saw a lot of people who I was just convinced at the ripe old age of 22 that they could never work anywhere else. They were trained to work at IBM. And of course, if you know, of course, the history of IBM is that most people who work there do work there their entire careers. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be like that. That That's not me. I don't want to be stuck in one place being what kind of felt like an um, an automaton, if you will, you know, at, at 22, I guess I, I thought I had all the wisdom in the world. Uh, so I just up and left, right? I mean, at 22, you don't think about the fact that you need a job, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you have bills to pay and things. So, yeah, so I, I chose to leave and just decided to kind of bounce around on and try different things. Wow. Yeah. And then and then you became this communications expert. So I, <laughs> the reason why I'm saying this is is I'm I'm sure all these things that happen to you, the microaggressions the decision to recognize and understand people and trends, they probably played a role as soft skills needed for you to become uh, an expert in communications. And so uh, how did you then get into communications? Because if I remember, once again, uh, researching, you wanted to be a teacher at first. So I did. Yeah. I, I did. I, I wanted to be a teacher. And I think we're all kind of um, we're all the product of what we see, right? So, you know, at one time I wanted to be a bus driver because that's all I saw. And then I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And someone said to me, my freshman year in college, first semester freshman year said, um, I don't know that you'll ever be able to make a living as a teacher. And that was kind of all it took. <laughs> And I said, okay, I think I'm going to take this communications class. And so I did a journalism class and it was just, you know, love at first, you know, essay. 
that I wrote and uh, and I never looked back. I have always been in communications and I spent the next, you know, 30 years or so, or so just honing my craft, right? Honing my skill. And, uh, and I have uh, up until recently, until I decided to make a, a big pivot, uh, I've never really thought about doing anything else. I, I love communications. I'm passionate about it. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I like to say a strange thing happens without communication, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, true. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, we're going to get to the big pivot because I'm, I'm very curious about that. But I, I wonder if you could break down what is essential in corporate communications? Because I don't know if a lot of people know corporate communications or what it entails outside of, you know, the field. So what does it entail? Yeah, so corporate communications primarily is, it's business communications, right? It is communicating on on the behalf of the business to position the business in the best way possible. So when you think about branding, you think about reputation, uh, issues management, crisis management, you know, your corporate communicators are the people who really are charged with the reputation and the perception of the company. And so that may be internal communications, it may be media, it may be PR um, events. Uh, I happen to do a lot of crisis and issues management because I'm crazy and that's just what I like to do. But it's really you are kind of the um, you are the one who holds the company's reputation uh, in in your hands. It's that's really what you're charged with. So like Olivia Pope and scandal. (laughs) That would be uh, that. That's a great comparison, although we don't deal with dead bodies or kill people Ah. or people, you know, those things. We don't break the law. You don't. Um, <laughs> and as I like to say to people, you know, because they people always say about communications people, oh, something will happen, what will happen, well, how are you going to spin this, right? And I always like to correct people and say, good communicators don't spin anything, right? We tell the truth, we're about transparency, we're about authenticity, we, we don't spin anything. If a company makes a bad decision, then um, then shame on them. You know, this causes me to reflect. I've been studying, uh, you know, people my whole life because I grew up everywhere in five countries and I, you know, and you live, I lived in a dictatorship. And so for me, for some reason, I was always the nerd that wanted to try and connect to different people and I, I would study different things. And what, what I've been studying during COVID-19 is how all leaders around the world are approaching the crisis that we're in right now. And you're being generous by saying they're approaching it. <laughs> that, that, that's right. Yes, you, you're right. And I, right. you know, and I'm ju- I juxtapose, you know, uh, what 45 is doing with, you know, Boris Johnson over there with with uh, Jacinda Ardern, who I, I love, or Angela Merkel in Germany. And it seems to me, I don't know if you agree with this, that the people who are able to communicate with compassion, empathy, and authenticity are the ones that are able to manage the crisis better. And the ones who are focusing on blame shifting and not focusing on facts are the ones who seem to be spiraling out of control. But that's just my observation. I don't yeah, know. I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And the thing that I would say is, is the, those who are doing well are the people who are, um, who are addressing this from a point of empathy. Right. And who are addressing this from a point of concern about their um, about their citizens. It, you know, if I take, for example, um, in the U.S., um, Governor and Andrew Cuomo, you know, I think he has done a fantastic, absolutely fantastic job. I agree. Uh, he immediately started communicating. Right. And he said he. He, he said when he didn't know, he said what he didn't know when he didn't know it. He said he'd find out. He's always cared about um, his constituents and, and not even just his constituents, his residents in, in the state of New York. Yeah. And see, you can see the difference between, I, I won't call out some other governors or other politicians, but <laughs> they're not, you know, they are not managing this from a point of empathy and no. or authenticity. And, and we can see it, you know, the, the days of where you can just pull the wool over people's eyes, that's so over. It is. It is. I, and I live in New York, so it's interesting. Cuomo's 
you know, he's an institution. His dad was a governor. I mean, this is like, <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, institution here. And the attitude towards Cuomo was probably lukewarmish initially. I mean, he was always going to win. He was the incumbent. Uh, but after this, it, it's just, it's risen where people have found trust. And this is always the true test of any leadership. I think Absolutely. in a company or in any institution, it's how you handle a problem when exactly. it presents itself. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting that you found yourself in that because I think that's one of the things that has also mirrored your life when things have come your way where, you know, you, <laughs> it, we'll start with, we'll start with the first one and then, and then, and then I'll go into the, the other one. The other one, the, one of the things that happened to you was you decided that you were going to have children with your husband and you were dealing with the, the looks, the, the stigma the uh-huh. idea of being a stay-at-home mom <laughs> and, and then coming back and you had this internal crisis, speaking of oh, crisis management. God. So please talk about all that and how you manage that. Well, I, I think, you know, certainly um, every parent and, and when I was coming up, certainly every woman, you know, you have this, uh, you always have this crisis of conscience and this this guilt about, you know, are you going to be a stay-at-home mom? Is that what your kids want? You know, is that what your husband wants? Now, interestingly enough, when my husband and I got married, we never once talked about having children. Right. It just wasn't even it wasn't on his radar. It wasn't on my radar. I I didn't even think about it, actually. So um, so that means then we never had the discussion of who was going to work, who was going to stay home. What were we going to do? But the one thing I knew for sure is that I was raised by a single mother who was an abused wife. And so she made if she made sure of one thing, it was that her daughter was going to grow up independent and able to take care of herself, period. And so the idea of staying home just never really occurred to me, but um, I felt like I was supposed to want to stay home. And so it's that guilt, you know, it's the people in that surround you uh, that say, oh, you know, that I'm, I'm so sorry that you have to go to work. You know, it's like, um, no, I, I, I choose to go to work. I, my kids would be a whole lot better off if I'm at work. I'd be a much better mother that way. And um, and so at some point I decided to stop accepting the judgment that people would try to put on me because I decided to go to work and I would make my decisions and I would own them. Right. And if I decided to go to work, then that's what I was going to do. And I wasn't going to let my neighborhood mommy mafia, you know, guilt me into thinking I was doing something, um, something wrong. You know, and it, and there there are two sides of that. You know, there's the there's the piece where you're you're not with your kids, so people say, "Oh my goodness, she's working and she's being selfish and she's neglecting her children," and then you go to work and you're almost punished again at work because people think, "Oh well, you'd rather be at home," so your career really stalls unless you make a concerted effort to say and make it known that, no, this is what I want to do. I want to be an executive. I want to grow. You know, I want to provide my kids a great life and I want to be a good mother, but that doesn't mean that I need to be home with them. Right. So I always say, you know, my kids are so much better off because I didn't stay home with them. (laughs) Trust me. And <laughs> you know, funny people people always people like to box people in into their identities. They don't think of people as intersections of their identities. That's- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I always say, you know, I figured, you know, in today's era that when my kids grew up, you know, and they're 26 and 24 now. And so I figured when I grew up, my kids were going to need therapy regardless. So I just wanted to minimize how much they needed. Right? So that was my goal. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that they're going to need therapy anyways, because therapy is essential, but you it, minimize it. <laughs> right. My goal was just to minimize how much they needed. So. You know, and I think if you ask them today, they're both girls, and I think if you ask them today, today they'd say, "Yes, we we missed um, we missed my mother not being home all the time, but um, but we're better off, and we're independent girls, and 
and they were both they were very active in school they were competitive dancers competitive cheerleaders and i believe in the entire time from four to 18 i missed one performance that each of them had uh, in there even though i worked so you know and that meant if that if i had to take a trip to australia and do it in three days i did you know you just you make your decisions and you live with it right breaking down you know <laughs> gender roles and, and I, I love this look this is this is why i got into diversity equity and inclusion not only because of understanding what it was like to be in different cultures but because my mom i and i come from a two-parent household my dad was the d diplomat and he would always go travel back and forth and a lot of times my mom had to make this internal decision where okay am i going to resign for the next four years where we're coming back am i quitting my job am i staying at home and i would just see what it was like as she was dealing with that and uh it's interesting watching it as a boy right. <laughs> because you know you're looking at the world and it's telling you you go provide and then you're looking at your mom and you're like but she's the strongest person i know <laughs> so, wait, so, so i was thinking wait wait, wait what do, which one is correct what what is that right, exactly <laughs> you make sense making right how do you make sense of it yeah yeah and and um but it definitely gave me perspective and your mom certainly set up a good precedent because you as well i remember you, you, there was a time, I think you left a job and you came back to a job and they were. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Bermuda you for leadership, and they said if you did well, they'll give you like a 10% raise, and you said, why don't you give me the raise now? And, right, and I'm like, wait, you can do that? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, you know, and and where till this day, you know, um, where I got the that those kinds of guts, you know, where where I got that from, I can only think from my mother because you know I was, you know, it was going to be a better job, and uh, and I think a lot of women would have said, well okay, I'll, I'll take the job and we'll see in six months how we're, you know, how we're doing and hopefully I'll get that 10% raise, you know, and at, at that point, you know, I knew enough to say, you know, companies can be well-intentioned, but, you know, if it's not in writing, it's not going to happen. And if you think I, ha if you think I'm worth it, then pay me what I'm worth, right? <laughs> but let's not, you know, let's not play this game. And I know, you know, women, we typically are horrible at negotiating. And so I just, you know, I, I kind of adopted at some point along the way, you know, a mentality of what do I have to lose, right? You lose your job, you go get another job, period, right? But, you know, if, if you don't venture out there, if you don't try to break the barriers, then they're just always going to be there and they're going to be there for the people who come behind you. Right. So at some point along the line, it became a whole lot more important than just about me. I love that. And um, I love the examples that you're setting. Sometimes, though, we can't really control things and life throws us challenges. One of those things that happened to you was breast cancer. Yeah, man, was I pissed off? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be pissed off too. What? <laughs> Well, uh, what happened when you got the diagnosis? What just what went through your mind? I don't even know. If, I don't know how to handle that. 
Yeah, you know, the for a lot of people, breast cancer is in their family somehow. So they always have in the back of their minds that um, at some point they're going to get breast cancer and have to deal with it. That wasn't me. I think of the women in my family, you know, go years and decades back, no one's ever had breast cancer. So um, when I was diagnosed, um, it was it was really a bummer, of course. You know, I was really at the um, top of my game. I mean, I was firing on all engines. You know, my my kids were in um, were in college or coming out of college. So it was just, you know, uh, you know, I was just kicking butt and taking names. And, um, you know, I was skinny as hell, but I was doing really great. And I wasn't I wasn't feeling that great, but I wasn't that concerned about it. You know, we women have a horrible habit of ignoring um, um, our health, not as much as men, but we do. And uh, I went to uh, the doctor and um, and ultimately ended up being diagnosed with um, stage one breast cancer, you know, and being, you know, kind of, you know, Betty Badass. I was like, ah, stage one. I'm good. There's no problem. <laughs> and so the doctor said, well, let's let's have an MRI to see what's really going on. Uh, and then it became a much uh, a, a much more serious case of um, breast cancer. And, uh, and, you know, I was thrown for a loop because I didn't know how to have breast cancer. I, I didn't really know what that meant. And so I handled it the way I would work. I said, okay, what decisions need to be made? Okay, I need to have a, 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 a mastectomy, you know, don't take one, take them both because I don't want to do this again. I needed to have chemo. Okay, I had chemo. I needed to go through radiation. Okay, I went through radiation. I did everything by the book, the way I was supposed to. Um, and then when I came out of treatment, um, my life was just in complete um, disarray. And I had an, an identity crisis like I had never experienced before in my entire life. And I didn't know, um, I, 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 just, I didn't even know who I was anymore. Right. Because I'd look at pictures in, in my house, you know, you have pictures of your family around and and I'd look at pictures of myself and I wouldn't even recognize myself. I'd say, you know, this is before cancer. And I'd look at that person and and I'd look in her eyes and I'd see this carefree look, you know, the look of someone who feels like nothing bad can can really penetrate them. Right. And. I look at those pictures and I had to stop looking at them because it made me so sad because I knew I'd never be that person again. But yet this person that I was now that I'd gone through um, breast cancer, I didn't know who that person was either because things that mattered didn't matter anymore. You know, so it was really, it was a real soul searching experience because everyone, when you're diagnosed with any kind of disease, it's all about fight, 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 you know, fight for your life, make sure you get through this, you know, and I had friends that I went through cancer with who ultimately they died from it. They had the same thing I did and they died. Um, and so you fight through it and you fight for this life, um, for your life. But then when you come out of it, it's like, well, what life is this? I've been fighting for a life that I don't even think I want anymore. So it was really, um, you know, people don't talk a lot about the mind game that is cancer. They just think about the physical piece. And in hindsight, um, I think post-treatment was so much harder than going through the treatment of breast cancer. Really? Yes, it was because that was a being treated for breast cancer, that was physical, right? I, I knew I was going to be sick during chemo. You know, I knew my hair was going to fall out. You know, I knew what radiation kind of was going to be about. What I didn't know is that when it was all over, that I, I didn't know I wasn't going to be happy to be alive. You know, when people would say to me, wow, you must feel great. You just beat cancer. You must be on the top of the world. And I'd nod and I'd smile and I'd say yes. But the reality is that I wanted to jump off of a bridge. Wow. It's, like, it's like, I don't know whose life this is that, that I have anymore. I, I don't know, you know, what, what is the rest of my life going to be, 
right? Because everybody expects you to be the same because with the exception of no hair, I mean, you look the same, you know, and there are, you know, things you can do to fix that. So, you know, you, so everybody expects you to be the same, but inside. And, um, and coming to terms with that and dealing with that is really, really hard. First of all, thank you for sharing. And, uh, I don't even, I, there's so many things to follow up with there. I mean, there's so much. <laughs> but I, I love the authenticity and honesty you had there with the identity crisis because I'm even thinking about this, what's happening right now in the world. This new right. normal is not, it's a new normal, right? You had a new right. normal. It's not like you're just going to go back to the same. You're, a lot of people's lives have been changed regardless right. of what's happening. And some people, are going to be depressed or depressed or situational or depressed. And is that why you decided to write a book and, and make this this pivot? Because you've had, up until this point, people would be like, I, I just love Charlene's career. Like, she's got the husband. She's got the kids. They're doing well. She's VP executive. She's getting all these awards. You know, PR uh, player of the, you know, of the year, a PR Hall of Fame. And then cancer. And people think, oh, she beat it. And you're saying, uh, <laughs> I need something else. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it all started. So I, um, so I decided to write, a, to start a blog, right? So I started my blog, justbetweenusgirls.com. I don't know if you've seen it or not. And, um, and I started my blog not to talk about my journey before cancer, mm -hmm. but to talk about my journey post-cancer and post-treatment. And so, you know, my treatment was supposed to last seven months. Um, for me, it ended up lasting three years because I had so many complications. And uh, I ended up having, I think in three years, I've had nine surgeries. Mm -hmm. you know, so it was just, uh, it, it was just untenable. But, you know, one, so one one thing that I've always done as women do sometimes with ourselves is, you know, you're not feeling well, you do a little retail therapy, right? You go out, you buy something, you look cute. You're like, okay, I feel great now. So um, one week I was engaging in quite a bit of retail therapy and I found myself in, uh, in a store, a fur store to buy a fur coat. Now I have been, I, I don't judge, but I have been anti-fur my entire life. So um, the fact that I was in a fur store was really strange. And then the fact that I left that fur store having bought a mink coat was really odd. Uh, and so I, I, I put the coat in, in the trunk of my car and I drive home and I'm feeling pretty sad. Um, you know, I'm thinking, wait a minute, I just spent all this money. I'm supposed to be happy. And so I got home. And I said, you know, let me just see how much money I've spent this week on feel-good purchases. And I ended up having spent um, $100,000 that week. What? Okay. Yeah. What? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know? Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I know how to burn up a credit card. Right. And, um, and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I've spent $100,000 and I'm still not happy. Something is wrong. Something is really wrong. So I started looking online for people who were talking about life after treatment and that it wasn't great, that, you know, life after breast cancer sucks, basically. And, um, and I wasn't finding anything. And I knew that if I was at that point that I was pretty depressed. And I was talking with my oldest daughter and I told her that I bought a mink coat. And she looked at me and she said, you know, mom, is it okay if I'm disappointed in you? You know, and that just cut through me like a knife. And I, um, I and I said, yes, sweetheart. I said, because I, I'm disappointed in myself. So long story short, I um, took everything back to the store, thank goodness, except the mink coat because those are non-returnable. <laughs> <laughs> it's not returnable. Wow. Yeah, they're going to have buyer's remorse, right? So they're not taking those things back. 
And uh, and then I started, um, because I couldn't find resources, I said to myself, you know, someone has got to tell the unfiltered truth because there are women out there who are depressed, who think there's something wrong with them, who think they're supposed to be happy because they just beat breast cancer and they and they're not, you know, maybe it's like a postpartum depression type thing. I'm not sure. So um, so I started my blog and I said, you know, I'm going to start I'm going to tell the truth, right, whether good, bad or indifferent. I'm going to talk about the fact that, you know, I'm having complications and I have one boob and then sometimes I didn't have any. And sometimes I had two and they point in completely different directions. And, you know, and I was just going to put it all out there, you know, that women become afraid that their husbands are going to leave them. And quite frankly, for um, some of the research I've done with breast cancer patients, you know, 50% of women who have breast cancer, their spouses leave them before they ever finish treatment. Right. And I, I talked about that. I talked about the insecurities that come with it. So that kind of started my whole kind of pivot. And then when I went, um, uh, when I went back to work, uh, people would give me a little bit of grief about my, um, about my blog, you know, some, you, know you, you put a lot out there, Charlene, we, you know, we know a lot about you now. And, um, you know, aren't you afraid that this is going to hurt your career? And I said, well, there certainly is that possibility. Um, I said, but, you know, my purpose right now is so much greater than my fear. It's just so much more important than my fear. And, um, you know, work was a little wonky, I might say. And then, you know, and I was stressed out and I thought, you know what, this is not my purpose in life anymore. It is no longer to be the best executive that I can be. It's not to you know, squeeze myself into whatever form corporate decided I needed to be today, that there's something bigger, there's something that I'm supposed to be doing. And so that's kind of what led to, um, to my book. And so my book basically is, um, is to just help people understand, and particularly women of color who are um, in the corporate world, um, that you are enough. You know, you don't have to turn yourself inside out. You don't have to be the person who wears, you know, um, blue, brown and gray every day because that's what the corporate uniform is supposed to be, you know, that you can be authentic at work. And so my book talks about really the um, 11, I put it down to 11, kind of the 11 lessons I learned. Um, I call it lessons from being invisible in the corporate because we women of color are very often invisible. And so I talk about those 11 lessons and what I learned in how to deal with those and then how that building that strength actually gave me the strength I needed to handle my um, cancer diagnosis the way I did and then wake up one day and say, I'm done. That's, uh, you're, I mean, I've said it before, but you are incredible. I, I just love that you're saying these things. And I, <laughs> I relate to this. I'm one that's very public and authentic and I get the same questions. So when you said purpose is great, you're greater than your fear. That's something I've said before. And I say all the time when people would say, you know, you talk about mental health, you talk about, you know, anxiety, you talk about this, you talk about all that. And you're sometimes dancing like a goofy person online. Aren't you worried? I even get it from my mom. I don't know if you know a lot of my Nigerian parents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very traditional. And I, I, and I would say something like similar purpose is greater than fear. But I would also say I would never want to be anybody else but myself to suit someone else's idea of what they think I am. All right. And it's interesting when you say that because I imagine that there are many people playing a role in other people's movies instead of directing their own movies. Absolutely. Um, and, and that, yeah, and that's gotta be, I mean, sometimes it takes an, you know, a, a big event or a crisis for you to realize, wait, who am I, right. <laughs> what have I been doing for all these years? Ah, yeah. That's I okay. Got, yeah. I just got tired of, um, you know, it was, you know, it was, you stand out too much, you know, at work. It's like, well, I'm a black female among 
mostly all white men. Yes, I'm going to stand out. It's not because I'm wearing bright colors. It's, you know, it's because I'm going to stand out. It's like, well, you know, you're too outspoken. You're not outspoken enough. You're too this, you're too that, you're too this, you're too that. You know, and after, you know, 30 years of that, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to be me. And if that works for you, great. And if it doesn't, you know, we don't even have to hate each other. We can just say we don't belong in each other's lives. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and just take it from there. So uh, so that's kind of where I am right now. And it's, um, you know, my poor husband is probably having a heart attack. <laughs> like, wait, a minute, wait a minute, what is going on here? You know. Ah, well, I can imagine. I can imagine. But this is what's best for you. And with will you book so it, it's going to come out you said probably next year right or late in the year what are you thinking yeah so um right now it is more than halfway finished so um, my manuscript is due next month actually and i think i'll be ahead of schedule on that I so uh, yeah so the book will be um i believe i will have books in hand in uh in october Uh, But because of um, coronavirus and COVID, the way that retailers are handling books have changed, um, has slowed down quite a bit. So it may not be until the beginning of next year that it's actually released. So, yeah, the the sad thing is, is the um, the issues are not time sensitive because they're still going on. Yeah, yeah. Ah, well, then we have to find a way to support you. So how can people support you? They, they can follow you where to make sure that they don't miss the updates. Yeah. So right now, um, the best way to stay, I guess, to stay in touch is on um, is certainly through LinkedIn. And I'm at Char Wheelis uh, on LinkedIn. And then uh, through my blog, justbetweenusgirls.com. And girls has two R's in it. Um, but I will say that I'm probably going to be um, retiring my blog soon um, mm-hmm. over the next couple of months and um, shifting to uh, a whole new website and a whole new web presence um, as I, I'm using my book as a platform for, um, for public speaking. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm, where I'm pivoting to. Reinventing uh, yourself. Look at I, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lot to say, and I think that it's something that people need to hear. It'll yeah. it'll be helpful, I hope, for a lot of people. And there are other people who are in p- positions of power um, that they need to hear, right? Yeah. Because it's, you know, you talked about diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, you know, and I, I would take that just a step further and say it's not it's not only um, diversity, equity and inclusion. It's belonging as well. Belonging, yeah. Companies need to get to a point where, yes, we're going to be inclusive, but we want you to feel that you belong you, in your authentic self. Right. Wow. That. Yes. <laughs> That's so beautiful. That- Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah. we're, I'm, I'm going to make sure I put all this in the show notes because <laughs> this is this is an amazing thing, and I I just love that you are reminding people that the act of being yourself isn't a fixed in. You know, it's on the spectrum. It's something you learn about every day, and you have to be intentional about learning it. Otherwise, you're going to be conditioned. And then you're not, and then you're going to lose aspects of who you are to whatever happens in the world. So. Right. No, what's amazing is that because I'm I'm guessing I'm quite a bit older than you. So what's amazing to me, Taya, though, is that you are recognizing all of this at your age and and so young. Uh, well, thank you. I they say my birth certificate says I'm 30. I don't know if it's true or not. I think oh I'm- my gosh, I think <laughs> your mother. <laughs> no, but, but but no, I, I look. I it's only life lessons and. I I know that I still have a lot to learn, but it's just observations. And um, I started being untraditional at a very young age. And, you know, <laughs> my identity crisis came with a near-death experience with a car accident. And that, that was at 22 when you decided, when you had the IBM thing. And, <laughs> and so for me, that's been the journey since. The last eight years has uh, been about figuring that out. And so that's that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. 
and the podcast was launched 24. So, wow. Okay. You've had it for a while then. Yeah, this is, I've done over 500 episodes and I'm so glad that you're one of them. Well, thank you very much. Well, yes, I, I did look at your um, podcast and listen to a few of your podcasts before and I saw the numbers and I thought, oh my gosh, th- this is a commitment. This is really great. I, it's, it's, I, think, I think getting stories like yours out there is very important because people can find themselves in their stories. And so we don't do it enough. And so I'm glad that we, we have you here. But Final question I have, though, is, yeah. is always something I'm curious about. It's like, it's my mission statement reframed as a question. So how do you, Charlene, use your difference to make a difference? The way I use my difference to make a difference is that I tell the truth. And, I, and it's through my authenticity. Because I'm the one, you know, I, let me back up. When I was coming up in, in the corporate world and I'd go to these um, these sessions where women would talk about how I became successful and, you know, women would tell these stories and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, that can't possibly be what happened. There, ha- there had to be more to it than that. So I committed that when I whenever I got to that point in my career, I was going to make a difference because I was going to be true and real. And I was going to be the one to tell you that the fact that you're a black female is an issue, you know, that not everybody is invested in your success and some people are invested in your failure and you need to know it and you need to know how to deal with it. So that's how I use my difference to make a difference. Well, then. Uh, I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. <laughs> that is well said. Use your difference to make a difference by telling the truth in a world that doesn't do that so very often. Huh. Right. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank okay. you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Well, the pleasure has been mine. It's really been great to meet you and to have a conversation with you. I am. I admire what you're doing, um, and I appreciate you le- letting me be on your show. Well, the the uh, feeling is mutual. As soon as I, I heard about you, I said yes, and and research started. So, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is this has been fun, uh, ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals. Till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.